When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to another Buckeye Retalkables. Doug Marie, Nathan Baird, Stephen Means is on vacation, and we've got a game, Ohio State fans, that will make you sick. Don't watch it. Hey, is that Nathan? You think it's a, a, a way to really invite people into the podcast? This game's going to want to make you puke if you are aware of it as an Ohio State fan who may have watched this 45 years ago, then you know it makes you puke. If you're a younger Ohio State fan or, you know, I mean, you're generally aware of like, right, you're aware of Woody Hayes and Archie Griffin because those are like two big guys involved in this game. Pete Johnson, Cornelius Green, right? You know who those guys are. You know they were great, but you don't know maybe all the specifics, Nathan, of When did they win? When did they lose? Whatever. Don't watch it. It will make you cringe for three and a half hours. Now, the good thing is lots of good 70s commercials on the cut that we found on YouTube. And if you want to watch this, just go on YouTube and then put in 1976 Rose Bowl, Ohio State versus UCLA. There's a nice three and a half hour cut, which includes like a, a full like 40 minute pregame show with weird 70s sportscasters in random RVs in the Rose Bowl parking lot, which we could do a full retalkable just about that. But the game itself, this is the conclusion of the 1975 Ohio State football season. It is Archie Griffin's last game as a Buckeye. It is the last Rose Bowl that Woody Hayes will ever coach in. And it is from an Ohio State fan perspective, and listen, we're not fans, Nathan, but we're watching it, right? Like for Ohio State, from an Ohio State perspective, it is nauseating. That was the main emotion I had watching this. Yeah, I wouldn't tell people not to watch this. I would tell people not to watch only this. Go back and and watch any number of like great moments from the previous three seasons to kind of help set the stage for this. And then this can be like sort of the completion, but it is an unsatisfying completion to be sure. And I, I'm one of those people who like, I've, I don't think I've ever watched an Archie Griffin football game. Have we done a retalkables that with Griffin was no involved in. So this is our first one. I, I, I didn't think we did the first one kind of from this window and it uh, does not live up to the expectations of a two-time Heisman trophy winner, but not only maybe not completely for um, he's not the one to blame for that. 
No, no. It is just, I mean, it, what's nauseating is the talent that you can clearly see on Ohio State, and we're going to get into that, and then the inability to utilize that talent in this game. And this is a game Ohio State is playing UCLA. Ohio State has been number one basically the whole season. They've been blowing most teams out. They had a close game with Michigan, but they've just been dominating this year for the most part. And that included beating this same UCLA team earlier in the season on October 4th in Los Angeles, when Ohio state was number two and UCLA was number 13, Ohio state won 41 to 20 and Nathan, they wind up then like rematched in this game. UCLA had tied air force the week before the Ohio state game. They lose to Ohio state a month later, they lose to Washington. So they have two losses and a tie coming into this game. They're number 11. They're good, but UCLA is a 15-point underdog in this game, Nathan, as the announcers repeatedly remark upon. And the vibe of the game, you could just – it was more like a slog early. You could kind of tell it's like, ah, Ohio State's not clicking, but they clearly are the better team. And then there's a momentum swing, and it starts getting away from them, and they have opportunity after opportunity to still salvage it in the end. And the fact that they didn't, and again, we're not going to pretend, we don't want to come on here and pretend because we spent, you know, two hours rewatching a game from January 1st, 1976, that we are experts on Ohio State history. So we're not going to pretend that. Woody Hayes was the coach for 28 years. The Woody Hayes legacy has been gone over a million times by a million people. But fresh off our minds, right, this is probably one of Woody's two worst losses because there's a national championship in his hands and they lose. And then 1969, the super softs coming off the 1968 national championship, they go to Michigan and lose to Bo in 1969. And that takes away the shot at a national championship of repeating his national champs with those two teams. But it is a reminder for anybody, for any Ohio state fan who is not intimately familiar with this season, this game, 1975 season, it's Archie's second Heisman. This team is right at the top of the list of greatest Ohio State teams that did not win a national championship because they were number one and they went out to the Rose Bowl and they lose 23 to 10 to a clearly inferior opponent. And if they had won, Nathan, if they had won, I think this is one of the all-time great college football teams, not just for Ohio State, but you would have a the only two-time Heisman winner who has two other studs in the backfield with him and cornerback in quarterback Cornelius Green and fullback. Pete Johnson coached by a legend. I mean, this would be a team that people would have talked about forever if they had gone out and repeated the three touchdown win over UCLA that they had early in the year. I talk about that a lot, like with the 2015 team, what was lost, but that team lost it earlier in in the season. Um, This team all time greatness in their hands, Nathan, and it, and it slips through their fingers in the Rose bowl. I don't even think they'd have even had to repeat the same kind of win. You know what I mean? It didn't have to be 42 to 21 again. Just find a way to win that game. You're the undefeated national champion, like you say, with a two-time Heisman Trophy winner, uh, a legendary coach. A you know, I, I absolutely think that when these lists come out every few years, ESPN did one a couple of years ago where they like ranked all of the the greatest teams of all time. Absolutely, Ohio State would have been on that. They may have been on there anyway. I can't remember, but they certainly would have been much higher. You'd have to include them among the, the great undefeated champions of that era. 
So this stretch, this is just such an odd stretch for Woody. It's, he's starting to wind down a little bit. He's 62 years old as this game is played. But this stretch, 1973, 1974, 1975, it's the Archie stretch. It's Archie's sophomore, junior, and senior seasons. Ohio State is 31-3-1 in these three seasons. They are number one during the regular season for long stretches in all three seasons. And they do not win a national title. 1973, they're number one. They tie Michigan 10-10. And they wind up fourth in the polls. But if you beat Michigan there, you're on track for national title. 1974, they're number one. They lose to Michigan State on November 9th. They wind up then going to the Rose Bowl and losing to USC. But if you don't have the Michigan State upset, you remain on track, right, for a Rose Bowl bid that they got anyway, but you would have been playing for a national title. And then 1975, they're number one the whole year. They lose to this team. They lose to this UCLA team. So it is a very difficult stretch. And, and Nathan, Woody won five titles. I'm not going to make this debate. I mean, one's absolutely fake, but there's lots of fake titles. But 54, 57, and 68, no doubt about it. 1961, they have a tie. Alabama's undefeated that year. Alabama wins both pole titles. They get the football writers, but at least they won their last game. It was a tie, not a loss. I, I, I sort of get it. 1970 is one of those fake titles where they're handed the title before the bowl season, and then they lose the Rose Bowl. And it's like, well, you're not, I mean, like you're not a national titleist if you lose your last game. That's another missed opportunity, losing that Rose Bowl. But he has five, right? Nick Saban has seven. And I'm, you know, I'm not going to run through all the coulda titles that Nick Saban could have had because Nick Saban could have a couple more too. When you're great, you're in the mix. You're not expected to win every championship game. But what he wound up with five. And, you know, you add this one, you add 69, right? You add like he had five, he could add eight. And this probably is the one at the top of the list that at least would have gotten into six. And, uh, and it's a missed opportunity. It's 62-year-old Woody Hayes versus 39-year-old Dick Vermeil in this game. Again, UCLA, 15-point underdogs. And, Nathan, we have to get into – before we get into our categories, and if you guys have listened to the Retalkables before, you know we have specific categories we go through to analyze the game. This pregame show, I don't – this is – we'll get into this a little bit in style check. This is, again, it is a changing America, and they are in the parking lot in RVs, and I think they think that like an RV may as well be like the eagle has landed. Like it's the greatest technological advancement they've ever seen. They're doing these awful interviews of like, hey, uh, so you like being an RV? Yeah. So who you got in this game? UCLA. And it's just like the worst TV you could ever see. But there's also the thing I did like, Nathan, a lot of Disneyland. A lot of Disneyland in this pregame, including Woody Hayes hanging out with Grumpy, one of just a giant headed grumpy dwarf living person, right? And um a big Rose Bowl vibe. Like we did, we, we do get a very big Rose Bowl California vibe. It's like oh, the games, the temperature's only in the 50s, they said for this. But man, if you want to soak in some 70s Rose Bowlness, this this pregame show is for you. Yeah, and I I didn't watch very much of the pregame show because usually there, anytime you see one of these old ones that's on youtube or whatever there's usually some chunk of the pregame on there and you just look for when they start playing football you kind of drag it across and you go i was dragging for a long time until i finally found oh that's where the football game starts i think and but i the reason that it has some value beyond just sort of like gawking at it like a uh, a, a car wreck that you can't take your eyes off of is what you're talking about which is that 
it was a great indicator of a bygone era when this game as an event was more important than the outcome of the game in some ways. Like I felt like the outcome of the game was in a little bit secondary to just the pageantry and the the spectacle and the everything that goes around it. Like my mom has a story. My mom grew up in rural central Illinois. Well, they were in Kentucky before that even. And like, don't, like not a family of means of any kind. And they have some story about like driving out West and watching and going to the Rose Bowl parade when she was a kid. Like this is just a thing that people did. Um, and it was a, a, just a, like part of the, like a central part of American culture at the end of the year, every year was the, the Rose Bowl game. And games weren't on TV that often throughout the year. And I think it's only the third time that this great Ohio state team was on TV all year from what I saw on, I think it was Wikipedia or something. So it it just, that whole 45 minute droning on of, of Yahoo's in the parking lot does help you understand how huge just the Rose bowl experience was and, and how seriously people took it. And now I feel like we've changed because like, even if you watch the game, you get to halftime and there's not a lot of bunch of like analysis and highlights and we're going to other games and all the stuff you would see now, they're just showing the halftime show. That was the halftime show on TV too. Like that was just, it was just a different way to consume sports in 1976. When the Big Ten, when Jim Delaney, when the Rose Bowl, when it, like when they all are hanging on to each other in the modern day as tightly as they continue to hang on to each other, this is what you're right. Like this is what they're trying to harken back to, and it's like it's gone. Like th- that era is gone. The stadium itself is still cool. There's still the sunset over the mountains, but like the rest of this is not nearly what it was. Kate Smith, the singer, the God bless America. God bless America singer. She's the uh, grand marshal of the Rose Bowl parade. They interview her. She's telling the story about like the nice thing that Woody Hayes said about her at the luncheon. She tells like a whacked out story about Woody Hayes that I'm not going to mention here. Not whacked out story, but it's, did you hear that thing? I, I missed it. <laughs> I, I guess I'll say it. It's just of the time. She's explaining like the kind of coach that Woody Hayes is. And she says like, he's the kind of coach where he'll kick you in the butt when you need it. But then after the game, he'll he'll scrub his players backs in the shower, just like a good paw should. And it's just like like it's the example of like coach him hard, but then like, you know, be there for him. And like that's and it's just like, what am I watching? The whole thing is like, what am I watching? But it is pageantry out the wazoo. So. If that's why it's like, well, why can't we just have home games in the quarterfinals of the college football playoff? Like, this is why. Because Kate Smith in 19 and January 1st, 1976 was the grand marshal of the Rose Bowl parade. It was like the biggest thing in America. This is why the Rose Bowl and the Cotton Bowl and the Orange Bowl are like shoehorning their way into like the playoffs because they, we are grabbing on to this still. So whatever. But it is Rose Bowl at peak Rose Bowl. There is a little football pregame though. And the last retalkables we did about 1979, the Ohio State Michigan game, where we had a lot of 70s vibe there, right? This is Woody, Woody in like the scarlet and gray plaid jacket. Again, like this is such of the era that Woody Hayes was wearing plaid sports coats. Like Woody Hayes just wants to dress like an army general. And I was like, nope. Style dictates that a 62 year old football coach must wear a plaid scarlet and gray. Sports coat. And it's actually, I think Ryan Day has worn a similar sports coat now, I think, as a bit of an homage. 
Woody, so in the pregame, they have Dick Vermeil, the UCLA coach, and Woody Hayes sort of running through their team. What he's talking about, they have the great backfield back. They had to rebuild the offensive line. They had eight new starters on defense for this season. He's happy how it all came together. He's really clearly happy how this season went. And he says, we don't expect to stub our toe now, which is practically trash talk. But basically, it's like undefeated number one Woody Hayes is like, we already beat these guys. We're not going to lose now, which does give a little window, Nathan, to like how Ohio State was feeling going into this game. Yeah, and I think with good reason. I mean, it was just a team that had to feel like it was on, on the cusp of a, a culmination of something that not just what they had done that year, but what they'd been building to for three years with Archie Griffin and, and everything that that team had done and been on the kind of the precipice of doing the whole time and not really been able to climb the mountain. And, and But then obviously on top of that, again, like you say, you've, you've already not just beaten this team, you went into their stadium and, and whooped them, um, you know, something just up the street, really. And I would, I, I don't know if you'd call it overconfidence, but you should, any team, I think would definitely feel like if they go in there and take care of business, they're the ones in control of that game. Woody Hayes, four and four in the Rose Bowl in his career, won the first three, lost for the last five. And this is his final Rose Bowl. Michigan, this is the 1975 season. Woody has three more seasons in him. Michigan goes to the Rose Bowl the next three years. So this is Woody is a legend. You can't think of the Rose Bowl really without thinking of Woody Hayes. And this is the last time he's going to coach in it. That's what's at stake. That's what's on the line. It's one of those things that I'm a little torn sometimes. Like how much should we spoiler alert this? It's, 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 it's 45 years ago. So like I'm assuming you might have an idea. UCLA is going to win this game 23 to 10. It is much closer than that score indicates. So we will go through this game, what happened, why it happened, what it does to your stomach to watch it. We'll get to the categories, starting with who owned this game next on Buckeye Retalkables. All right, Doug Maurice and Nathan Baird, if you want to try the texts, it'd be a great place to do it. We're, we're going to probably start uh, a text subscriber bracket. I think we are going to do the best games since the Trestle era. Cause I think that's something basically everybody listening to this, everybody on our tech subscription service can relate to. I, 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 somebody has suggested Nathan that we almost do kind of like small retalkables for each game, almost like as a setup to the bracket. Like, I think there's a way we could do that. It also might be a little bit much, but why don't you become a tech subscriber and see exactly how we do it? We are going to do the votes and we are going to do, the bracket. So that is the plan um, with that. And it's fun. We've done several of these, Nathan, I just as a, as a heads up for people before the end of the summer, I think we'll do one more before we get to the start of the season. And I think we do have the Ohio state Miami national championship game, a little more relatable lined up for that, but even these old ones, Nathan. Oh, and I wanted to mention the Michigan library released this week. I tweeted about it. Follow me at Douglas Maurice, go find my tweet released game film of like 400 Michigan games dating back to the thirties. And there are a boatload of Ohio state, Michigan games in there. So it is not the TV broadcast. It's like coaches film, but I think we could grab and Some of them are only like 20 minutes long. Nathan, I do think we could do a retalkables where we grab like the 1937 Ohio state, Michigan game in black and white and watch whatever we can watch and try to do a maybe mini version of retalkables on that. Cause I did find that very interesting. Cause Nathan, I do like this old stuff. Well, and I, the old stuff, I think end up telling you so much about 
the, what comes next in, the, in, the, in almost the present day. There are times, as we've talked about this a bunch of times, where you're watching a game and you it hits you like, oh, why did they do that there? Um, which is what someone else asked themselves, which is why the game is played differently now. Why I think sometimes, you know, athletes are different now than what they were then. I, you feel like when you go back, you're just watching the predecessor to what you're watching now. And you can kind of, it fills in the gaps of how this game changed over the past 50 years. Yeah, it's fun. So if you want to be a tech subscriber, it'd be a good time to get in because we're going to start doing that. Only the tech subscribers get to vote. 614-350-3315. If you like this weird stuff that we do on Buckeye Talk, we try to mix it up, especially in the offseason. Drop a review at Apple Podcasts. And of course, make sure you're checking out cleveland.com slash Buckeye Talk to read what's going up on our site. One of the things we're doing, working our way through the 50 best opponents Ohio State's going to face this year, J.J. McCarthy the Michigan quarterback, one, uh, a guy that I just put up. So lots of stuff happening, even though there's not much happening this off season, let's get to the categories who owned this game, Nathan Baird, in your opinion. Well, I would say the big winner of this game was Oklahoma because Ohio state losing this game was what allowed Oklahoma to win the national championship that year. But that's not really the spirit of what we're talking about here. I give it to Dick Vermeil. I mean, Dick Vermeil wins this game and by the start of the next football season is the head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles. And uh, this is a guy who, uh, if you go back and look at his career, it's, it's pretty fascinating that the rise that he made from like high school to junior college to college to, he was only at UCLA two years and then you're coaching the Eagles. And then there, uh, uh, Greg Kinnear's playing you in a movie uh, years later, but you wonder if, if, you know, in, inflection points in, in people's lives and, and what this meant for him, but regardless of what it meant as far as springboarding his career, I mean, what an achievement to like, you just got beat by this team, this behemoth team by three touchdowns at home early in the year. And then you bring your team back later that season and you knock off the number one team that's going out to claim its national championship. Also who I picked, he's 39 years old. He's going up against a 62 year old legend. It's like Ryan day. He's like the, like he's, this is his second year, and as you said, last year at UCLA. He parlays this win. He, I, like, I, don't, I didn't look up the specifics of how he got the Eagles I job. I, I doubt he gets it if he didn't win this game. He beat the number one team in the country. So he's the coach of the Eagles. Five years later, he's in a Super Bowl with the Eagles, and seven-year-old Pennsylvania native Doug Maurice is cheering on those Eagles. He later wins. like He takes a 15-year break from coaching, comes back and wins a Super Bowl with the St. Louis Rams and is coach of the Chiefs. But it starts here for him. And in the name of hyperbole, Kurt Gowdy and Al DeRogatis on the call on this game for NBC. I did see that Dr. Z, Paul Zimmerman, who was the longtime Sports Illustrated NFL writer, called Al DeRogatis the greatest analyst, I think, of the NFL and TV history. He is a little weird. He's kind of a weird dude, but it's the 70s. He is doing some stuff in this game where he's talking about coverages and the way guys are rushing and like the different fronts that UCLA is running that I think is probably pretty advanced color commentary for that era where I think a lot of color analysts were saying like, Oh, that's a great play. And it's like, this guy's like breaking down the game, but Kurt Gowdy, who was an all-time broadcaster, the hyperbole. Did you catch this quote on Dick Vermeil at the end? He'll probably never had as have as good of a win in his career than this one no matter how long he's a head coach. Kurt Gowdy, UCLA beating Woody Hayes in Ohio State 
39-year-old Dick Vermeil, Kurt Gowdy declares it will be the greatest win of his life no matter what. The guy wins a Super Bowl like 30 years later. But I think it was kind of easy to think that at the time because the Super Bowl was still like pro football was coming along. Pro football wasn't in American culture then what it is now. So I think, I mean, to, to Kurt Gowdy on that afternoon, like to beat, to beat Woody Hayes and Archie Griffin after they beat you by three touchdowns earlier in the year and, and to, to win in a, what turned out to be, like you said, it was closer than that score indicates, but I also feel like UCLA should have won that game. I mean, they won that game. So I think to, to Kurt Gowdy in that moment, I think that was a reasonable thing to think. That if the that if the Rose Bowl was the biggest thing going and you just sprang a huge upset yeah. as a 15-point underdog over a legendary player and a legendary coach, how's it get better than that? Yeah, and, and, and again, in a game where it's not like you lost by a fluke, it's not like you lost on a controversial call or Archie Griffin gets hurt in the first quarter and Ohio State doesn't get to use him or something like that. Like You went toe-to-toe with him and you beat him straight up. And I, I, again, because just what, what that game meant culturally at the time, uh, if you had asked people at the time, I think, wouldn't, don't you think the Rose Bowl would have been, was still more important culturally in America than the Super Bowl was in 1976? I mean, it was maybe close. We're getting there. It's like the Steelers run is starting and stuff like that. People are kind of into it. Joe Namath had already happened. So I, I don't know. I would maybe argue that, but I guess it's certainly closer. Than it, is than it is now. Yeah, yeah now it's not sure. even close. Yeah. And probably, I mean, there's probably someone listening to this who will do more research for this podcast than I did myself. Maybe there's some quote like Dick Vermeil wins the Super Bowl with the Rams and people are like, Dick, is this the greatest win of your life? And he's like, no, it's when I beat Woody Hayes an undefeated number one Ohio State in the Rose Bowl. Maybe that quote is out there. But Kirk Gowdy was feeling it. Kirk Gowdy was feeling it in the moment. The under JT Barrett, underappreciated player of the game. I will say... And we got to, we'll get into this, this backfield, this backfield, the hyperbole on also reality of this backfield for Cornelius Green, Pete Johnson, Archie Griffin is discussed a lot. Not a lot of huge names on this defense. Like as someone who did not grow up watching Ohio State football, like they, it's not like guys leaping off the page of like, wow, yeah, that's a famous guy. Like beyond Cornelius Green, Pete Johnson and Archie Griffin, like not a lot, not a ton of dudes. We'll get into a couple more. So I think there's a lot of candidates for underappreciated player. And this again is this guy that I picked is not underappreciated by Ohio State fans who, who have been around and really know it. I think maybe he's underappreciated by a, a younger generation who just is not as familiar. Pete Johnson's a baller, man. Like he's like the lead blocker for Archie half the time. And the other half of the time he's taking in, inside handoffs and running three people over. He had more than a thousand yards this season. He had 26 rushing touchdowns this season. He's the guy that gave the ball to on the goal line. In this game, Archie Griffin, 17 carries, 93 yards. Pete Johnson, 19 carries, 70 yards. Not like huge, like production necessarily, but there were times in this game where, and it's why it was frustrating from the Ohio state perspective, there were times watching Archie Griffin and Pete Johnson. And then the Cornelius green wrinkle where it's like, well, I don't know how anybody stopped that. Like the three of them, those are your three options running the ball. Like that's devastating. And Pete Johnson kind of took over as the main guy the next year. He went on and had a really good NFL career. Like, listen, people know who Pete Johnson is, but if you haven't watched Pete Johnson in college, this is an indication of how much of a wrecking ball this guy is. You know what I mean? And I just thought maybe underappreciated isn't the right category because Ohio State friends be like, what are you talking about? He's an all-time great. 
but he's in the he's in the backfield with a two time Heisman winner, and he's a beast. Yeah, it, it, again, kind of just hearkening back to a bygone era, which is I guess what we're supposed to do when we watch games that are forty five years old, but. To call him a fullback, too, though, I, I feel like if, if someone tells you, oh, OSU oh, had this really good fullback for that year, it would have undersold his versatility that he even showed, I thought, in a game like this where he's slipping out and catching passes, where he's just got a little bit more to him than, you know, uh, take the hand off and fall forward and get your three yards or whatever. There, there's more to him than that. With exemplified in those stats, but just watch this game and you see what he meant to this offense that was more than just being a lead blocker for Archie Griffin or just being the, the, the short yardage option, the, 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 the two yard plunge guy. But when he does block, he destroys people. <laughs> there's like, I mean, there is yeah. like a, there's a thing early on where Archie gets some yards and it's just like a linebackers kind of coming into the backfield and Pete Johnson is just like, <laughs> just like wipes the dude out. So um, is, is he also who you had or who did you have for underappreciated player? No. And because again, my perspective on Ohio state football is so different. Like Pete Johnson, I knew about, I knew about all the touchdowns he got. Uh, Cornelius green is someone that I was not really familiar with at all. I know that I've heard that name, especially his importance as the, the first black starting quarterback at Ohio state, but I didn't have any uh, recognition of his game and, and what he was in the kind of athlete he was um, or corny green, as they call him throughout this game, which I thought was a, a terrible nickname. Um, but there was, you, you saw how, what he was, the athlete he was could sort of play off of pivot off of the other guys that they had in that backfield. And I agree with you that um, I, I think that they, he was misused sometimes situationally in the passing game in this game. Um, it was still something that again, because of the era you weren't going to have a, a, a passing game that was as crisp as what we expect in the modern era. Uh, but he, he had some talent there. And, and what he did with the, the football as a runner, I thought, I'm always impressed by those guys who, okay, when you've got a big hole, you turn that into a big run. I understand that. But when things fall apart and you can turn that play back into zero yards, sometimes that can be as significant in helping your team ultimately win a game. And I, there were multiple instances of him doing that, I thought, in this game. So Corny Green is in the book, which is coming out September 14th and is the 17 tales of Ohio State recruiting stories. So I've been talking to Corny Green a lot over the last few months. Um, but I do, again, it is, we don't want to talk down to this audience, Nathan, because we have a lot of people listening to this who, you know, have been Ohio State fans for 50 years. But if you do not know Corny Green very well, if you are not super familiar with what Cornelius Green did at Ohio State, go watch some Cornelius Green highlights. Find other games, because this is not one of his best games. And we'll talk about the situational passing. He seems better out of structure than in structure. He does some stuff on his own that is unbelievable. But you could drop a highlight of him in with Terrell Pryor or Braxton Miller or Justin Fields, and like it would feel like it fits in a way that like a lot of stuff from 45 years ago doesn't fit today. It looks out of place. He's a rare player. He was a huge recruit out of Washington, D.C. I detail in the book, the battle for him. Michigan State was really in on him. Michigan had, State had a legacy of black quarterbacks. Actually, one of their black quarterbacks was, was now an assistant coach recruiting Cornelius Green for Michigan State. Michigan State thought they were going to get, get him. And then Rudy Hubbard, who would go on to be the head coach at Florida A&M and was a former Ohio State running back. This was his, his first year as an Ohio State assistant. He was the first black assistant at Ohio State. Woody hires him. He finishes his career. It's not a great career. It's not what Rudy wanted. 
Rudy basically tells Woody like, yeah, well, that didn't really go how I expected. I'm not sure if I, if I could do it over again, I come to Ohio state. Woody calls him in. Rudy Hubbard thinks Woody's going to yell at him. Woody hires him and says, go recruit. And the first two recruits that Rudy, Rudy Hubbard is instrumental in landing for Ohio state are Cornelius green and Archie Griffin. And so that is called getting your money's worth out of your new assistant. So Cornelius Green was just did things on the football field in Washington, D.C. in high school that he continued to do on the football field at Ohio State. He was the Rose Bowl MVP the previous year before this. Corny is very proud of the fact that this season he was named Ohio State's MVP, even though Archie won the second Heisman. And then as, as a result, he was the Big Ten MVP because you had to be your team's MVP to be the Big Ten MVP. That's how important Cornelius Green was. So again, here we are talking about the other two guys in this backfield. And let's talk about this backfield now. Al DeRogatis, in talking about the backfield, compares it to the Army backfield of the 40s yep. that had two Heisman winners, Mr. Inside, Mr. Outside, um, Doc Blanchard and Glenn Davis. Like, that's, that's the comparison, right? That's like only 30 years earlier, mid-40s to mid-70s. But it's like, how good is this Ohio State backfield? I don't know as good as the greatest backfield of all time. But that's what we're talking about with Griffin, Johnson, and Green. Yeah, I, I did hear that as part of the pregame show. And, and that it strikes you because you, you understand the gravity of that time. Like I think now we're in such a different era of football that even by 2006, people weren't even referencing the backfields of 30 years prior, right? Like it, the game had changed so much, but like the, between 46 and 76, I feel like people thought it was essentially the same game that there hadn't been that, that sort of like structural change. And when he says that, he's basically saying like, Oh, well, they're probably either the greatest backfield of all time or the second greatest backfield of all time. And if for, for again, back then it was such a game where I think you're probably drawing in, maybe more casual viewers or teams that people hadn't watched Ohio state every week of the season. And that would have given you the perspective of like, this is what you're about to see. You're about to see a, a backfield that should go in and run roughshod over this place today. Yeah. They're an amazing trio. They are really an amazing trio. And it does make me want to go by, back and watch a game where they dominate because they do get stopped a little bit in this game. Again, Aldi Regattas talking about their UCLA is using like an even man front, an odd man front. They're throwing some stuff. They're getting a little penetration in the backfield. They are throwing them off a little bit. And I, Ohio State really gets stuck in this game, Nathan. I think of trying to decide, well, the run game, I think, is not as effective as usual, but should we just stick with it and it'll eventually shake loose? Or should we start to throw more? And that getting caught in between, I think, that decision, I think there's a world where if they just would have said, screw it, they're stopping us now, but we are eventually going to wear them down because we have maybe the greatest backfield of the last 50 years in college football. We're eventually going to shake loose and we'll be fine. If they just would have stuck with the run, if they would have thrown zero passes, I think they might have won. Maybe, but also it reminds me of the Virginia Tech game a little bit. I mean, like you know, again, 2014 Virginia Tech, they throw a defensive front at Ohio State that they're not really anticipating and not prepared for, and it just it just slogs up the game. It just mucks everything up the whole game, and Ohio State never gets going. I think that might have happened too. I don't know. When they threw it, they didn't throw it especially well, but there is, there is some stuff happening here against this amazing backfield, and I'm not sure what Ohio State should have done. We'll get into it more, but I mean, we can talk a little bit now. I felt like Ohio State did not call a great game offensively, but I'm not exactly sure which way they should have gone in trying to fix it. I, I thought there were a couple of, like, especially 
egregious decisions that we can talk about or I don't know if egregious, but like where it clearly backfired, where they went a little bit unconventional. It did not work out, may have even cost them the game. I don't know if I agree that they needed to if they should just run on every play. You know, early in this game, DeRogatis says, you know, um, boy, as close as those UCLA safeties are playing, you wonder why. Ohio State doesn't maybe put the ball in the air more, something along those lines. And then for most of the rest of the game, they spend uh, ripping Ohio State for throwing the ball as much as they did. So I don't know if they kind of got themselves caught in between there a little bit, but I understood what he was saying. I do think, though, going into this game, knowing as little as I did about it, I expected, oh, this is Archie Griffin's last game. I'm probably going to watch him run the ball like 50 times, and it does not turn out that way. It does not. It does not. And we will get into some of those decisions in a little bit slop moment of the game. This is where we try to give a little heads up to offensive linemen. And I almost combine this with another category because the guy that stood out their left tackle in this game is Chris Ward. Who's a sophomore. And at some point in the game, D Rogatis or Gowdy says that like, they think he's going to be an all time. Great. Here is the way that they're describing him. He's a sophomore in this game. He comes back in 1976 and 1977. He's an All-American. And then in the 1978 NFL draft, he's the fourth pick. So it's like they knew what was coming, and he was showing it here. When Ohio State's rallying, they score a touchdown in the second half to cut the lead, and it's Pete Johnson running behind Chris Ward. And again, it's like, well, when that's working, how does anybody ever stop that? And it's like they're like, well, this is what Ohio State does. They get near the goal line. They run Pete Johnson behind Chris Ward. And it looks like one of those things where I think they could probably get five yards of play all game just doing that with those two guys. And that's not even using the Heisman Trophy winner. But Chris Ward is showing you what he's going to be. No, there were definitely a lot of flashes from him. Um, they were, I guess I should say, though, I thought they were – a little bit sporadic. You went through long portions of this game where you were wondering where that had disappeared to, why they weren't utilizing that maybe as much as they could have. Um, maybe a little bit more of just a, a simple bare bones approach doing that sort of thing would have gotten them farther. You already mentioned too the, the Pete Johnson. There were a couple of those moments that were, where he really lit a guy up that I thought uh, stood out. And then one that I remember, and this is a hard game. This is one of the hardest retalkables we've done because um, actually, one thing I was going to mention under the uh, underappreciated was literally any game graphics at all. This It's like being in a casino where they don't want you to know what time it is. Like you can't it, it's very hard to like get the flow of the game because they don't tell you the time ever. Even right. when you're going to like commercial breaks, they don't tell you the time of the game. You You have to like really be paying attention. And if you're trying to get through it like we were, sometimes that's tough. Um, but there was in the third quarter. Um, late in the third quarter, UCLA um, was inside its own 20. I think Ohio State had just punted to them. And then they, they blew up a huge hole and got a big run that just kind of helped. I can't remember if that led to points, but at that stage of the game, at the very least, it helped them flip the field. And that ended up, that was a huge juncture of the game. So Ohio State does jump out 3 nothing in this game. And they are leading 3 nothing like through a lot of it. That it's weird. And UCLA only has two first downs in the first half. They are uh, the yardage in the first half. I think I wrote it down here. I mean, it's just like it was 176 to four. No, I'm sorry. 174, 48 in total first half yardage. And I believe 155 to nine in rushing yardage. Yeah. So it's favor of Ohio State. Ohio State's not converting anything, but they're still kind of dominating, which again, like Nathan is sort of like the exact thing that makes you nervous. 
when it's three, nothing at halftime, you're like, okay, well, like Ohio state's doing okay, but you can also tell where they're kind of screwing up. It's like self silly mistakes, you know, like a, just like a weird play call. Why'd you throw on third down or like a guy slips or just like a, a you know, a, somebody gets hit and fumbles, but they recover it themselves. It's like a lot of weird stuff like that, but UCLA is doing nothing on offense. So it's three, nothing at the half with that dominating edge. And then UCLA ties it. UCLA like gets, gets juiced up in the third quarter. So they tie it at three. Then they go ahead uh, nine, three, cause they mixed, missed the extra point. Then they go ahead 16, three. And so I'm leading up to, we'll, we'll bounce around a little bit, but I'm leading up to my Malik, Malik Hooker. Where did he come from award? Ohio state scores early in the fourth quarter to cut it to 16 to 10 on that Johnson run behind Ward that I talked about. And UCLA comes out. And Craig Cassidy intercepts a pass over the middle with just like great defensive back play, like ideal defensive back play. Ohio State has just scored. It's UCLA's next drive. And they pick it off and it's like, okay, this is like the momentum swing. So that's my Malik Hooker, where did he come from award? It's for Craig Cassidy. That was his ninth interception of the season. That remains tied for the most interceptions in Ohio State history. They mentioned on the game, Mike Sensabaugh had nine picks in 1969. And in the 1975 season, Craig Cassidy has nine. Nobody has beaten that. And I'm not sure anybody will, Nathan, with kind of the way the game is played now and you throw away from guys and just there's not as many picks as there used to be. Craig Cassidy, first-time starter as a senior, the son of Heisman Trophy winner Hop Cassidy. And it feels like, It's like, you know, right, Nathan, it's like there's this moment. He does come from out of nowhere. It's beautiful. He returns it like 30 yards. There's a late, he gets, there's a late hit on him on the sideline. So Ohio State now is taking over on the UCLA 35 yard line. First and 10 on the 35. This feels like a huge play from Craig Cassidy. And it's, it's, it's like emotional. It's good football. It's a momentum swing. And it was just exactly like what you want a safety to do. Yeah, no, it was a huge play. And it leads to something that I think might be the first instance of this in Retalkable's history, which we'll get to, I think, in a later segment. But no, a huge play. And I also I had picked also the, the Bruce Rule interception earlier in the game, um, back when the those guys were still referred to as defensive halfbacks. Um, but but another play where just kind of swooping in and, and getting a pick as as one of the ways that Ohio State was sort of keeping UCLA buried in that in the first half of that game. I mean, UCLA did nothing offensively in the first half of this game, almost like to an embarrassing extent. They were completely flattened in the first half of this game. They they got nothing going on the ground that forced them into the air. And then you had rule picking it off. I mean, the, everything was playing right into Ohio State's um, favor on that side of the ball, but on offense, they could never capitalize. It was like one of the ultimate examples of like a, a between the thirties success. And especially back then with the nightmare that your kicking game typically was you, you weren't going to win football games that way. Okay. So that covers our Malik hooker. Where did he come from? And it leads into, again, we have these two categories smushed together. The J- Jim Trestle punt or not to punt moment of the game. And then the Tim Beck, Bill Davis, questionable coaching moment. I'm going to flip them and get right to the Bill Davis Tim Beck questionable coaching moment, because for me, it is the next play. And we have to talk about the next play. There's another thing that I think fits the trestle thing. It it could also fit this, but we have to talk about this next play. However, we fit the category. They get this pick. They have scored their first touchdown of the game on the previous series. Ohio state comes out at the 35 yard line. 
of UCLA and they call a pass play and Corny Green throws an interception. And it is, again, I don't know. I'm not sure this would be a great headline on cleveland.com. The 10 worst plays in Ohio State football history. This is in the mix. It's a terrible throw because, like, it's not really off target. It's just like, oh, there's a defensive back between the ball and the receiver. I don't know what – I don't know why they called it. I don't – like, this is your your play call. Now, the previous series, when they scored a touchdown, they did throw it a decent amount. They opened with a 12-yard pass to Archie Griffin, an incomplete pass, a 12-yard pass. Like, they were kind of throwing it successfully, So, and that's when they drove. So, like, I guess maybe I get it, but Nathan, it is absolutely backbreaking. So that was my questionable coaching moment. I, and, and I was going to bring it up later. I thought it was maybe the first example ever, because we have a, a the Maurice Claret game saver um, category later. And I thought this was the first example of back-to-back plays where teams thought that they had made the Maurice Claret game-saving play. Where, like, you know, it seemed like the Cassie interception was going to be that for Ohio State, especially with all the momentum they had at that point. And then they gave it all right back on the next play, and, and it was – it was kind of all but over at that point with what um, UCLA was able to do, but no, it's, it's a, it's almost shockingly bad. I mean, for those of us who don't have like a rooting interest in these games, it's, it's bad enough when you're watching any team that has something in their hands and then just sort of giving it away that way. I think there was a play in the, I was reminded of the last retalkables we did because there was a play in that game and Keith Jackson referred to it. I don't think I've got it here in my, my notes you have a retalkables notebook where you just have like all the great games just lined <laughs> i just up. happen to have the last two in the same notebook but uh keith jackson like he absolutely threw a dying quail up in the air and that's exactly what it was on the fake punt from the uh the ohio state michigan game in in 79 and this reminded me of that it was it, you know as much as i was um impressed with other aspects of cornelius green's game i was not impressed with that throw and again like as we're informing sort of the myths of Ohio state football. Like everybody knows like the Woody Hayes, when you throw the ball, two things, three things can happen. Two of them are bad. Like I would having watched this game, I would never have called a pass play for the rest of my career as the Ohio state head coach. I, I, I'm glad you brought that up. I think, I think that is the stupidest football cliche in history. I still had coaches telling me that up until the mid nineties as if, okay, yes, an incompletion could happen and you could also get zero yards on a run. So that's the same thing. And yes, you could throw an interception. You could also fumble the ball away on your stupid ill-advised option pitches like they did a couple times in this game. So that could all, you know, turnovers could happen either way. Like it's, it's almost to me an indication of a not intelligent person when they say that. And I know we're applying like modern thought to the past, but it's, it's never made sense to me. And I sometimes wonder how those types of people ever innovated at all in their in in their style of football if they had such a uh, just a bizarre perspective on the game it's just it's a way to express a philosophy right which is it's basically a bad philosophy though no well but but the philosophy is like a run first philosophy which i'm not sure it was a bad philosophy in the 70s like especially like a, a philosophy more like ingrained in like let's run until they stop us kind of stuff of like well it, like passing is riskier and so if we can run why would we pass because passing is riskier there's a bigger reward but if we're getting constant tiny rewards let's just pile up tiny rewards and win and like again in this game like to me this is the game that would make you say why are you throwing 
Now, again, again, they did stop the run at various, but like it felt like at this moment, I don't want to get caught up in the cliches too much, but at this moment, Nathan, to get the ball back 35 yards away from taking the lead, it felt like regardless of what had happened before with the momentum shift and you know who you are, I, I, I would be hard pressed to think they could not have Griffined, Johnson and Green their way on the ground for those 35 yards, how maybe 10 plays, 35 yards. I don't care. However long it would have taken the way the game shifted with that Cassidy pick that felt like that was there for the taking. And instead they tried to sling it on first down and they gave it away. Yeah. And to me, it was uh, my little rant. There was more about just that journal philosophy. It wasn't even necessarily the way it was applied in this game, but I thought that the problem in this game, as I sort of referenced before, was just the situations. Like, why are you throwing there at a time where you have sort of – they were throwing the ball, as you said, a little bit before, but I, that they had come to a juncture of the game where I thought that they were controlling the game on the ground a little bit. That was sort of – had become the engine, and why would you not restart that engine? And then there, there were other points of the game earlier in the game, and I remember a third and four where they – just run like a dive up the middle. Like it just seemed like a, a game where they were, it, it was like George Costanza was calling the offense and going against his, as uh, his first instinct every time. There definitely was, I think there was a, there was like a third and seven where they like gave the ball to Pete Johnson, like up the middle. It was like, are you going to get seven on that? Yep. And then this is what I had for the Jim Trestle to punt or not to punt their second drive of the game. They hand the ball to Pete Johnson on third. They've been moving it. They're moving it pretty well. They hand it to Pete Johnson on third and two. He just slips. He just his, he loses his feet in the hole and he goes straight down. So that's fourth and two from the UCLA 33. It's like a 50-yard field goal. You go for it. They go for it. That's the right call, I think, to go for it. Yep. But then they run this pass play that like breaks down immediately, and it's Cornelius Green running for his life, and it's like, that's the best you could come up with on fourth and two. You're not going to hand it to Archie behind Pete Johnson and say, get two yards. I just thought it goes to exactly what you're talking about. They ran sometimes when it felt like they should throw. And they, I thought there were multiple times where even though the run game was more of a slog than they expected, I thought they called pass plays sometimes when they didn't have to. And that fourth and two, they wind up getting stopped. They throw an incomplete pass. It's the second drive, and it's a missed scoring opportunity in a game where they only score 10 points. And so I just thought it's not going for it. It's how they went for it, and I don't know why they did that. And they even said something during the game. Um, I can't remember which of it was Gowdy or um, the, the color guy, but saying, you know, Woody doesn't like to throw in situations where the other team knows you have to throw. And I'm like, I hope that's not the reason why they're running the ball on third and seven and third and five and stuff like that. And just like plunging up the gut like that, that would be a really unsophisticated way, even for 1976, to look at football. Um, I understand if you look at it the other way, though, I guess you would say, well, on first down in that scenario, they have had some passing success. Maybe they think they're catching the other team by surprise. But the, the, the risk reward there is so high if you just give the ball to somebody who was on the short list of the greatest running backs of all time in 1976 and, and still is in a lot of people's eyes. I, I don't understand it. 
Yeah, it's hard. Did you have anything else? So again, that's sort of, you know, it's the coaching decision. It's questionable coaching moves. It's being too aggressive or not aggressive enough. Anything in either of those two coaching categories that we did not cover, Nathan? There was one, I mean, I literally had just written down the line, good God, maybe a pass on third and medium. <laughs> like that was, that. so it wasn't just, it wasn't one instance. It was a lot of instances. That was really what stood out to me. All right. Kenny Guyton, next man up award. I don't really have something for this. This is a, another tough one. Again, there wasn't like a necessarily like a major injury that popped up. Like it's just, it, it's hard to tell what's happening in the game because it's an old broadcast and like, you know, they're, they're going to sideline reporters. The, the two people who began the game in the Rose Bowl parking lot saying, is that a hamburger that you're eating? Wound up on the sideline doing the sideline reports. And they did have a few updates, but I didn't have a next man up because I couldn't really tell I don't know who was hurt or who's not. It, it was just a basic broadcast. That's a long day, by the way. I'm sure that they were like Pacific Coast time. They're probably in the parking lot at like 8 a.m. hanging out with uh, Barb and Eugene or whoever in their RV um, eating sandwiches and stuff. Um, I, the one I picked, though, it wasn't even for Ohio State, but um, Randy Cross was a great uh, offensive lineman for UCLA is in the college football hall of fame. It was like a pro bowl player in the NFL. He gets hurt late in the first half of this game. And I don't believe comes back. And I don't know if that was like some, in addition to like having played them as close as they did, but sometimes teams kind of rally around those moments. And maybe, maybe that helped like kind of the, the steam that UCLA came out with in the second half. Yeah. Future San Francisco 49er offensive lineman, future NFL broadcaster. Um, and then they break a big UCLA breaks a big run to really, really, really put the game away. So the, their offensive line didn't like fall apart without Randy Cross. That's a good one. Uh, the John Cooper, if they'll that they'll bite, they'll bite as a pup award. This is talk about young players. I almost said Chris Ward because Chris Ward's a sophomore in this game, and again, flashing what he's going to be. But there are two defensive linemen that were impactful that were sophomores that would go on to be like longtime starters at Ohio State. Number sixty-seven Eddie Beeman and number fifty-five Aaron Brown. Again, like Aaron Brown is, I think, in Ohio State's Hall of Fame, like he's a really good player. I'm not going to pretend I was intimately familiar with either Eddie Beeman or Aaron Brown. They, they're getting sacks in this game. They're getting pressure. They are both sophomores who did not play a ton as freshmen. And by the end of this, their sophomore season in this Rose Bowl, they are huge parts of this Ohio State defensive line. And then they stick around for the next couple of years and they continue to be really good. So it's just two names that are not, when you talk about the great Ohio State defensive players, they're not the first names on everybody's lips, but they played well in this game. Yeah, I think those were good. I think there was a handful of, of sophomores. I, there were a couple other sophomores who names I heard that um, that I think would have gone on this list. I was looking specifically for freshmen, and I, I know that that's a John Cooper quote and we're supposed to, to kind of focus on Ohio State, but um, UCLA had a, a guy named uh, Manu Tuiasa Sopo who was oh. a freshman in this game, who it, people know that name, I'm sure, because his uh, he was the f father of Marques Tuiasasopo and uh, Matt Tuiasasopo, who was a minor league baseball player for a while. And um, he, he was a freshman starter in that game, I think, for UCLA and ended up having a really uh, strong career. I think he's a he's still a football coach somewhere to this day and played in the NFL. So he was the one that, as, as far as like actual freshmen, kind of jumped out at me. Ted Ginn Jr. speed moment, speed award. I had two, one on each side. Because again, as your good point, Nathan, we've got to make sure we're giving the opponents credit here. Uh, who popped for you for the speed award? Well, this is, I mean, maybe a basic one, but like this is my first time watching Archie Griffin play. And while he was 
bottled up for parts of this game. There were other times where you saw if you gave him a hole, it was like it was like a portal into hyperspace. Like he could turn any kind of chunk into a, a huge gain. And that was something that, like, again, it's sort of in like a time capsule. You, you know of the, the Heismans, but you don't actually – it's hard to just based on that get a, an impression of how this guy played. And this was my first opportunity to go back and actually watch him at work. And I didn't get to see him at his uh, greatest moment. This wasn't like the apex performance of his career by any means. But you saw in you saw glimpses of what would have been there on so many other Saturday afternoons over those four years. I actually had the other Griffin on my list here, Ray Griffin, his brother, mm-hmm. who is a defensive back. They also hand the ball to him on a reverse on a kickoff, and he gets a little juice. Yep. But at defensive back, he makes a couple plays where he sort of shoots up and makes a tackle behind the line of scrimmage. And he when he gets going, he moves quick. And I've talked to Ray. In the last several years, he's had some issues with concussions. It's been unfortunate. Um, he, like many former players, has sort of paid a price in some ways for, for doing what he did. But obviously, an Archie Shadow, like really good football player. And you could see some of the natural gifts here from Ray. And then Wendell Tyler, who is the running back for UCLA. In this game, he goes 21 carries for 172 yards. Right when UCLA starts getting anything at all going, he breaks off a 30-yard run inside early in the third quarter that like gives like switches the momentum a little bit, gives UCLA some life. He has a 54 yarder at the end, a touchdown run that puts the game away. This is a guy who goes on to a good NFL career. He goes on to be a third round pick. He winds up again with the 49ers in some Super Bowls with the 49ers also with the Rams. I think before that is just like a good football player that was a 1200 yard rusher in this season, actually 1388 his total rushing yards this season, but man, like he took over the game and there were parts of, I mean, it's like, Oh, the two time Heisman winners in this game. Who's the best running back in this game. Wendell Tyler is the best running back in this game. No, I think no question that that's absolutely true. And that 30 yard run you're talking about, that was at one point, whenever I do the retalkables, there's always like kind of a running score of what the Maurice Claret game saver play is. And at one point that was in the lead because right before that play, they had, uh, the the split end as they call them back then Norman Anderson had gotten loose and the UCLA quarterback just overthrows them like they just gacked it they had a, a bomb set up and so that sets up third and 12 and then they run again I guess the play that I'm criticizing from Ohio State but they run kind of like a delay draw thing up the middle with Wendell Tyler and like you said he breaks it for like 30 yards now they end up fumbling in the ball away like the very next play so it didn't it didn't build them the momentum and, and and kind of seal things off the way it could have. But a huge play. He was he was a monster in this game. I mean, he was the highlight running back in this game. All right, another quick break on Buckeye Talk. We'll come back with style check, meme it, game saving moment. Um, was this a championship team? And then the enjoyment meter. 1976 Rose Bowl, January first, 1976, the end of the 1975 season. It's UCLA upsetting Ohio State 23 to 10. We'll finish that off next on Buckeye Talk. All right. We always do style check, Nathan. And again, these games from the 70s are especially fun for this. I could not zoom in on one. I I will say at one point they were talking about instant replay in sports and like they had a poll about it. It's my favorite moment of the game. (laughs) Go ahead. Kurt Gowdy says, like, they're going to do a poll about it. Kurt Gowdy says, well, I'll give you my opinion about it. <laughs> we already have too no, many. You, I, I have the exact specific? quote. Okay. Yes. He says, 
<laughs> I'm against it. There are too many numbers and too many computers in America now. I don't even know. <laughs> 1976. Kurt Gowdy, if you were to, I assume he's not no longer with us, but like reanimate him in 2022, 2021, and his brain would just melt because too many computers in 1976. Yeah, died in 2006. So I'm glad he got out of here before. I mean, the internet, I hope, was he on Facebook by the end? I don't know. But like, yeah, the, uh, too many computers. He's so angry. He's so angry. <laughs> there was, I don't know if I did that justice. Like there was real vitriol in his voice when he said that too many numbers and too many computers in America now. Because it is, it's like they're talking about, they're doing like a Gallup poll or something where like you can call in and vote on something. And he, and yeah, he says, he's like, I'll tell you my opinion. Like he just is like, well, you're not, you just, just read the ad, Kurt. You're not really supposed to tell us your opinion. He's like, well, Alan, this is, so I don't know. I hope Kurt Gowdy wasn't that angry most of the time, but the whole, my style check is just, so I, this game is played January 1st, 1976. I am two and a half years old. Uh, were you alive? Uh, I was born in August 78. Okay. I am embarrassed to have been alive for this game because it feels like it's played during the civil war. Just like with, <laughs> this is not yeah. only 45 years ago. This is, this is forever ago. It is insane. Every commercial is for a station wagon with wood paneling on it. <laughs> well, the very first, so you go back to the beginning, they're, they're getting things started at the beginning of that, like six hour um, Winnebago experience. And the first two commercials of this broadcast are for this company. It was Saint something. I'm forget. I should have written it down, but it's a company that like makes bags for dog food. And they have like these long, like documentary style commercials about it's like the most inane products. Like now I feel like every commercial is like a video game and like you're being shot into space while you're watching this thing and just like bells and whistles and flashes and, and explosions. And in this game, you're just expecting like some like, a commercial for like the embalming fluid that's used at funeral homes or something. It's just the most boring, uh, just uh, like it's just clinical industrial commercials I've ever seen in my life. There's like six commercials for like gas in this game. <laughs> and it's like, we're going to run out of gas or something. Yeah. I mean, it's just like I, it, it, but it, I, I guess it's this, I, I really feel like I should read it. These two last two Buckeye retalkables makes me want to read about the seventies. It is transformative because like, right. I mean, it's like the super soft's like 1968. It's a still a little bit of like the crew cut, whatever, you know, like just like of a, of a certain, it's still 1968 to me, super soft, like still feels black and white. I mean, like, what am I doing now? Now I'm just talking about history and like it's stupid. And then like 1969 came and there was Woodstock and there were hippies and there was a Vietnam war and the world changed, Doug. The world changed. Yeah, so the world changed. So this is like during the 10-year war. Um, I mean, it's just it's just nuts, but you can feel it changing. And it's like it is it is awkward as all get out. And so that there's every moment, there's weird style. Some of the specificity in the commercials is what really helps you understand like 40 years of progress. Like I wonder what Kurt Gowdy thought when he saw the commercial for the disposable razor with two blades because now we're up to like there's like 15 blades on every it doesn't even make sense anymore but like i can just imagine him seeing like you don't need more than one blade there's too many blades in america 
<laughs> but there were so many commercials that I, it's almost worth going back and like if you don't want people to watch the game because you feel like they'll be like disheartened or, or disappointed and it'll ruin this era of of history Ohio State football history for them just go back and watch the commercials are pretty fantastic they really are uh Mike Rosenberg from Sports Illustrated again wrote like a really good book about this era um I think it's war as they knew it it's about the 10-year war with Woody and Bo but it's about like the changing America around it right that it's like here are these two old-fashioned coaches and the culture is completely being flipped on its head in the midst of this like as they have these two great football teams so Again, you don't need like 10 cent analysis from us about how America changed, but man, it's nuts. Meme it. Let's, we do one more style, to, let's do one oh, more style, style check. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did I miss, did like Ohio State's game jerseys get lost like in transit to California? Because they're wearing like these transparent mesh, I'll just say like atrocities. Like this is like, this is not, this is what I wore to play like JV games for Jamaica high school in 1992. This is not what Ohio state is supposed to be wearing in the Rose bowl. Is it those, I mean, like there was that era, like in the eighties when kids wore like, like a mesh Jersey top that you could abs like you could see your nipples through it. Like, it's just, it's like wire. It's like, that's not a shirt. This is a, like a version of that on a football. Team. Yeah. You can see their pads through these jerseys. It's uh, use the word embarrassed. Like I was embarrassed about these jerseys on behalf of Ohio State. I know you. It's it's the era, whatever. But like somebody should have had the foresight to be like, this looks tacky and terrible. But again, it was the seventies, so everything was tacky and terrible. Seventies, man. All right, meme it. Um, like, what would be a thing that you would have put on social media if social media existed back then? I ha- Woody got wiped out on a play. By Willie Henry, he just here like it's knocked out of bounds, and they rewound it and like played it in slow mo, and the announcers did say a word about it. But it is Woody just getting nailed and knocked over on the sideline, and like that's not why he hit Charlie Bowman, but like given that like we're getting to that point, like in Woody's life, and it's like I'm wait, like you almost wait for him like to get up and like pop a guy, but, like dude, you just destroyed me on the sideline. But he's 62. I hope I move as well as. When I'm 62, as he moves here, he gets wiped out, stands up, and he's fine. But, like, the idea of, like, Woody getting crushed by a guy out of bounds is my meme. And, and I was kind of firing between plays, so I didn't see a lot of the replays, and I missed that in, in real time. But I picked um, a different Wally Henry thing as a good meme and contender, which is when he catches that touchdown pass and just starts, like, doing this dance where he's, like, spinning around with the ball over his head in the end zone. I thought that was good. And also, just the way that they would treat – things that were obviously humorous in just the most formal way possible. They're talking about a UCLA player named Oscar Edwards, who was a safety, I think defensive back of some kind. And he wears like this little like towel with a skull and crossbones on it. And it like flashes up on the screen, his name, Oscar Edwards. And then underneath it in quotes, Dr. Death. <laughs> like, it was, <laughs> like it was like, it was just this like really formal way to like present the, he goes by the name Dr. Death. I just thought that was, you could have some fun with that. Or you, you would swap out Dr. Death for something else on somebody else or um, just 1976, man. I can't believe Kurt like the, got, got through this game. <laughs> but that's like the one graphic they showed the whole game was Oscar Edwards, Dr. Death. Don't tell me what time it is at any <laughs> given point of this game or the score or even what quarter it is or what game I'm watching. But tell me it, his nickname is Dr. Death. Ah, 
as you said, 70s explains a lot. It makes me just want to not, we should just do like a break off. I mean, like Bill Simmons does this constantly, just break stuff up, stuff off in their own feed. It's like, we're going to have a separate feed just for retalkables from the 70s. We're just going to, those games stand in a different way. We analyze them in a different way. And so we'll just do only games from the 70s on the special retalkables feed. All right. Maurice Claret. Only commercials from the 70s. Yeah. Maurice Claret game-saving moment. So Cornelius Green, Ohio State picks off John Shira. John, is that the UCLA quarterback? I think it's John, right? Yeah. He's like an All-American. He, play, 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 he plays pretty well in this game. Misses some throws. So they pick him off. Cornelius Green comes out. Pick right back. UCLA gets that and like does nothing with it. They get a couple first downs. They end up on a fourth and 21 because they get sacked on third down. They punt and Ohio State gets the ball back. Still down only six. So they get the ball back on their 29 yard line. Cornelius Green scrambles for 11. Now it's first and 10 at their 40. Archie Griffin for one. Now it's second and nine from the 41. They're only down six. It like it feels Nathan like it's setting up for one of those things. The missed extra point is going to kill UCLA. It cracks the door open for this great team. And Cornelius Green throws another interception. He just airmails a guy in the middle of the field and like, and that's it. Because then, like two plays later, Wendell Tyler runs 54 yards for like the absolute slam the door game-ending touchdown. But if they could just, I, I guess it's second at nine. I mean, I guess what, what do you, I mean, he's going to hand the Pete Johnson on second nine. I get it. But man, like Corny is awesome. He is a great kind of rare player for this era. But there are a couple throws in this game that are just, just murder their chances of winning. And once they like, they live to tell about the pick after the pick. And then they threw another pick and then that was it. That's that, that ended it. Yeah, I didn't know if that, like, it's, it's almost like reverse game saver. It's like the game loser. That's too easy of a thing to say, I suppose. But, like, I guess the the game saver for UCLA in some ways, that, that they made those defensive plays. One that also jumped out to me that was sort of more of an Ohio State failure, and that's even a tough way to describe this, but on the Wally Henry touchdown that led to the, the memeable moment, you know, he catches it in the open field, and he's cutting it in, and there's an OSU defender there, and I forgot to write down who it was, and he slips. And I feel like if he's able to stay on his feet, they don't let him into the end zone. Is that enough at the end of this game that ends up being, you know, does that one possession, how much does that change the whole complexion of the rest of that game where Ohio State doesn't have, isn't down by two touchdowns now as you're getting late in this game and, and things are getting dire for them. Um, but we'll never know. But I, I just thought that that was one of those like moments that is sort of like frozen in time where a guy just one step the wrong way can be can, can cost you a lot again ucla shut out in the first half it's three nothing ohio state at halftime in the second half they score three touchdowns it's a 16 yard pass it's the 67 yard pass that you're talking about here and then it's the 54 yard tyler run so it's these two gigantic plays that again i, I mean ohio state fans have experience with like defensive backs slipping down and that killing them so it's just another example of I mean, there's just no way, you know, you, uh, I think Vermeil had these guys motivated that Shira, the quarterback did play a good game. Wendell Tyler shows that he's special in his own way, but there's just no way UCLA is better than Ohio state. There's just like every Ohio state did like everything wrong and still like UCLA wouldn't take it. Like as much as like UCLA kind of dominated the third quarter, they didn't end it. Ohio state was absolutely still there. 
And that's why when we get to, is this a championship team, which is something we ask on every retalkables. It's like, yeah, like they're, they're better than UCLA. They were the best. I mean, they were the best team in this country this year. And this is one of those Nathan, where I think maybe we talked about it on the 1979 one with the Michigan game that they weren't talking about the national championship that much because that 1979 Ohio State team, they beat Michigan. They're undefeated. They also go to the Rose Bowl and lose to UCLA. Or no, to USC. Now I, I can't remember. So in 79, they do this again. They repeat this four years after this 75 season. They repeat an undefeated season, losing in the Rose Bowl with the national championship on the line. But in this game, they do talk about losing the national championship, like again and again and again. They're like, well, they're blowing the national championship because it's obvious to everybody this is the best team, and now they're not going to be the national champions because of this. But I think undoubtedly they're a championship-level team. You definitely saw championship talent. You just didn't see it come together in this game. You know, one of the things that they say, and one of those – another indicator of how different this is now, both of these teams had played their last game on November 22nd, and then this game's played on January 1st. So you're talking about five weeks of – I guess you would say preparation, but also five weeks of, of, of losing any momentum you had at the end of the regular season. I know that's what every team in that era had to do, but it's just one, another example of like, at some point, everybody figuring out like, Hey, this is maybe not the most, this is not giving you maybe the best football at the end of the season. Like it seemed like such a, a distant tack on at the end of everything to have the importance that it does. And I, I, it, it, you can't say that affected Ohio State any more than it would have affected UCLA, I suppose. But it, 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 I, I see the championship talent on this team, but I, I see UCLA being the team that rose to the occasion more. I think if you were to look, this is a little bit reductive, but like when did UCLA win this game? When was kind of like the turning point for this game? I mean, coming in, they're a 15-point underdog. They gave up 41 points to Ohio State at home the first time. That's a 21-point deficit in that game. Um, you're talking about you know five national championships for the head coach, depending on how you count things, or more. Uh, a two-time Heisman Trophy winner, and they're down three to nothing in halftime. Like I think like all of those other numbers got kind of washed away when they look at it and say, wait, we only have to beat this team by four for a half? Uh, I, I think that was a huge moment. Like if, if Ohio State had more chances to do more things in the first half and when they couldn't separate there that's where this championship slides away but again that remains something i mean every ohio state fans know i mean that 2006 ohio state team that is is something that's talked about all the time they basically had six weeks off you know between the last game against michigan that's before the big 10 had a championship game and other conferences did and that's when the national championship game was pushed back even a little bit these layoffs do have an effect and aldi regattas on the call does make the point that like Ohio State's not as precise on offense. And he says, I think the layoff hurts an offense more than a defense. And that if the thing was, there's this Ohio State option running game where you have three guys and sort of play to play. You don't know who's getting the ball. Corny Green is really smooth at running it. And all three of the guys who might end up with the ball will kill you. That if they lacked precision, partly because of the layoff, that, that showed up here in a really big way. Um, and, and it's, it's just the reality of the times and it's why it's frustrating. And 1979, by the way, USC, I think we talked about Charles White went nuts on Ohio state in 1979. But again, it's this history of Ohio state multiple times going to the Rose bowl as the number one team in the country and 
blowing a national championship um, in that moment. I, I do want to read again. I can't say enough good things about Ohio State's website in reliving stuff like this. Go to OhioStateBuckeyes.com, go to football, go to history, and then they have everything year by year. And you can look at the season box scores. You can look at the game-by-game stuff. I'm looking at the game-by-game, the box score from the Ohio State-UCLA game. But then they have clips, which I just stumbled upon. They have stories under it. And I want to read the story from Kay Kessler from the Columbus Citizen Journal. He was like good friends with Woody. This is his lead. (laughs) It's like the first couple paragraphs after Ohio State blows this game. What a revolting reversal exclamation point that's a four-word lead some team disguised in the scarlet and gray but playing like the tank town turkeys gave away ohio state's national championship thursday as ucla scored a stunning 23 10 upset in the 62nd rose bowl it was a reversal of form hard to fathom for the buckeyes a reversal of an earlier confrontation and a dismaying turn Uh, a dismaying turnabout of the first half as deflation hit Buckeye football. What was thought to be the best prepared, most highly motivated OSU team in eons completely crumbled in the second half and got its brain scrambled badly by the same UCLA team that was a 41-20 victim the fourth game this season. I always wonder, like, what did would he go to that guy's house and kick his door in when he got home? That is hot. I would take that. I put Doug Lane Maurice right on top of that and claim Tank Town Turkeys as my own. <laughs> Tank Town Turkeys is a good. Uh, we need to get that on a Buckeye Talk T-shirt uh, somehow. Um, definitely, I, I love the overriding of of the pre-modern sports era. Uh, the, you can you can find some really great stuff, especially at a. a a circumstance like this where it's a, it's an unexpected result, but, but um, I also saw though, I don't know that he would have, if, if Woody would have gone after him just because I saw somewhere else, something else I was reading that uh, they described uh, there was like a brief exchange with reporters after the game by Woody, where he basically just said, we got out coached and outplayed. So I think that he knew as soon as that game was over that um you know, give, give credit again to UCLA, I think for rising to the occasion, but that Ohio state got in its own way a little bit that day. And it wasn't just uh, physical stuff. It was a lot of mental stuff too, stuff that he's responsible for. Yeah. Woody famously did not talk really after the game, put out a statement after the fact. And I got to read because we just talked about some of this stuff, the bad play call, it turns out this is why information matters. That's an audible. The green uh-huh. interception is an audible this is an AP story. This is Ohio State's fault for putting this stuff in here. It's so interesting. I'm going to read through this AP story very quickly because Woody, like Woody, just didn't say anything after the game. But this is informative, and then we'll get to the uh, how we rated the enjoyment meter of this game. Woody Hayes of Ohio State remained mum Friday, 24 hours after one of the most crushing defeats of his 30-year college football coaching career. The fiery 62-year-old coach slipped away from any post-game interviews Thursday after UCLA upset the Buckeyes 23-10, costing the national championship. Hayes was approached at least twice by sports writers traveling with the team Friday, and he declined any comment on the defeat that cost Ohio State an undefeated season. Hayes sat reading a book in the Los Angeles Terminal when a writer asked if he felt like talking. Nope, responded Hayes without looking up. 
from the book he was reading entitled Magnificent Obsession. In other words, the writer assumed Hayes had nothing to say. Right, snapped Hayes. School officials went to the defense of the 25-year Ohio State coach, but Wayne Duke, the Big Ten commissioner, had other thoughts. After all, it's just a game, said Harold Erninson, the Ohio State president, Ed Weaver, the Big Ten champion's athletic director, added it was one of his keenest defeats. Duke, who visited the Ohio State dressing room shortly after the defeat, would say nothing publicly, but it was understood he intends to talk to Ohio State officials to see such tactics are not repeated. I guess meaning Woody not talking. Here's where it gets interesting. An assistant coach who asked not to be named blamed the upset on audibles, plays that are called at the line of scrimmage by quarterback Cornelius Green. We automatic, we audibled ourselves right out of the game. When you teach your kids to do that, what can you expect, the coach said. When we got the ball on their 35-yard line with 10 minutes to play, we should have run Pete and Archie right into the end zone. We could have used up four and a half minutes and would have won the game. End quote. Instead, Green called an audible at the line of scrimmage and threw an interception. Buckeyes trailed 16-10 at the time and appeared to have regained the momentum. Um, oh, Archie Griffin also suffered a broken bone in his left hand on the third play of the game, which was kind of important. So anyway, a buried. <laughs> like ninth paragraph. Yeah. Two-time greatest player in college football history breaks hands as national champion slips, uh, national championship slips away. So that explains it a little bit. That's a bad audible. Corning is a great guy. That's a bad audible, man. But that, like, you get a sense from that, Nathan. That's some good sports writing from back in the day. You get an absolute sense of what this loss meant in the moment to this program. Yeah, that actually was more like it would have been written today as opposed to um, the, the the turkeys of, what was it? The, the Tank Town turkeys. The Tank Town turkeys. That, the, but that is good perspective. I even said, what did I say earlier in the game? Like, it wasn't like Archie Griffin got hurt early in the game. Well, I guess he did. Like, that could be a, a, a plausible reason why he didn't have more of a game, why they couldn't use him more, why they maybe didn't use him. If they knew he was hurt to that extent, like why he didn't get the ball as much, I don't know. But um, but but certainly, I think even at that time, they had to have some perspective on the opportunity. Like, that was you get through a four-year period – with Archie Griffin, a two-time Heisman Trophy winner, and you win zero national championships. Like, people have asked us, like, you know, is, is you know, Ohio State had Chase Young and Justin Fields and Jeff Okuda at the same time and didn't win a national championship. Now, obviously, there's – depends on who else is, happens to be in college football at the time. But, like, Ohio State fans would ask, like, is that a failure? Did Ohio State miss out on something there? And I would argue that this is, like, an even – at that time, with the structure of college football, I, I, this would seem like an even bigger, like missed opportunity to, to whiff on the championship for, for that period of time. Ted Kessler headline, Woody's behavior, totally classless. Oh man. Nothing makes sports writers angrier than not talking to them. So that is, <laughs> it, it, this is interesting. I mean, the guy, I mean, it's, you know, no, it's weak. It's it freaking, is. I it's, mean, but it's a, there's a statue of the guy. I mean, the, the, everything, he is the epitome of Ohio state football and like, this is a moment where they blew the national championship and like he sulked about it, like wouldn't talk to anybody. <laughs> the fact like well, and everybody ripped him. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's just like one of the truisms in life, though. Like you can be a jerk who succeeds at his job or you can be a nice guy who stinks, but you can't be a jerk who stinks. And then I guess the extent, as Woody Hayes later proved, it also just depends on the extent to which you are a jerk. 
Last Rose Bowl. Last Woody Hayes Rose Bowl. And this is how it went down. All right, the enjoyment meter for college football fans in general on a scale of 1 to 1,000. I said 750. Like, it's not a great the, – the play of the game is not great. There's, like, a lot of loose interceptions. You know, it's 3 nothing at halftime. I, I would imagine there are some people who were college football fans who were, like, 3 nothing at halftime. Like, I'm good. Like, maybe didn't come back for that. So, I mean, it's still like, you know, national championships on the line, and everybody's very aware of that, Nathan. So, I gave it a 750. I could imagine people going lower than that, though, because, again, it's just Ohio State's clearly better, and Ohio State doesn't play that well. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that would rank really highly. Usually, it's like it's a big upset. It's, um, you know, the the team taking down Woody Hayes and taking down the, the Heisman Trophy winner, two-time Heisman Trophy winner, and the number one team, like kind of the underdog doing good, like all of those things in the in, on the Rose Bowl stage should be a high score. But it was such a bad game, or at least a weird game for a big portion of it. I went 8-17, so I, I was still higher than you, but I just felt like it would have been a game that I don't know how much people, they would have enjoyed those things about the outcome. Did they enjoy the experience of watching that game? Yeah, no, it was not a hugely – it was interesting, like in retrospect, like you said, we're getting to watch some of these all-time greats. It was interesting to watch, but it was not like super enjoyable, though, no. Um, and then the Ohio State enjoyment meter. For a Buckeyes fan, what would it be? I had 333. Like you could – it's like it's a crushing defeat. Like again, it's arguably – it's like it's like Woody Hayes' worst loss. And like – and they gave it away like multiple times. I mean, I don't know. Could it be a zero? Could it be like, I? we, we started the podcast Anthony, by saying, don't watch this game. Maybe it's zero. Like, you're going to hate it. It might be interesting, but you will hate it. I had 204. I think you would probably rank it lower now than you would have even in the moment in some ways. Because, again, we look at it through the lens of what college football is now, the emphasis on the national championship and the way that's determined now. I think back then, people... Uh, had a different perspective on on it and that losing in this way was uh, obviously disappointing but was just part of the fabric of college football in some ways that you you did it through the bowl games and all that stuff so but not a lot of redeeming things here and then it's it's doubly bittersweet that you know you're watching Archie Griffin play for the last time and you're probably thinking you know this is you know this was was it, it was four Rose Bowls in four years right yeah, so they, they was four four yeah. Rose Bowls in a row. You think that that's continuing? You don't know yet that Michigan's going to go the next three years, and then and then Woody's gone. So those things also are out there that for, even in the moment, like they make the game less enjoyable when you know the history. But at the time, that wouldn't have been apparent yet. And there is some reporting or speculation that had Ohio State won this game and won the national championship with two-time Heisman winner Archie Griffin undefeated, that Woody Hayes would have retired. But that once they lost, he wanted to try to win one more national championship. And instead, he ends up going out the way he goes out. Imagine this. Imagine if this is Woody Hayes walking off into the San Gabriel Mountains. 62 years old, historic, would have been his sixth national title, like, again, this this is a like we don't get the whole, you know, negative ending of Woody's career. The difficult part of that, he would have gone out with Archie. I mean, Nathan, the context of that, I mean, I, I, I feels worth 
I wanted to well, throw that in so everyone could feel even worse. It denied, <laughs> it denied the founding father, basically, of Ohio State football, the grand exit that he was planning. Well, but in, and especially when you compare it to the exit that he did eventually have. Like that's what bigger contrast could you have between like being able to go out like the ultimate champion, an undefeated season, winning the Rose Bowl as a number one team, et cetera, six national championships, all that, and compare that to sort of the um, undignified way that his career did end with like a, a an unnecessary incident and being pushed out the way he did. Um, and now, yeah, I mean, he's got the statues and everything, so that counts for something. And then his name's on the building, so and he earned those things. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it, you talked. To, I said earlier in this episode that's kind of the idea of inflection points, and this is one of them. Like it could have gone in this direction and been sort of like a a all time triumph, and instead it ends up fizzling out in a very different way. Now we've ranged into like Buckeye fly effects territory. That this is like a great. What if Ohio State had won? Right. Um, fascinating. Man, I wish I would have done more research before the podcast. I'm like researching this stuff on the fly in the last 30 seconds. And it's like, what? He almost retired. Um, really should get better at this. To cleanse the pad a little bit. Next book I would talk about, I'm going to call an audible a, a little bit here. Better than Ohio State called audibles in that well, game. Well, watch out. Hey, <laughs> uh, we're going to do 2013 Ohio State, Florida A&M, 76 nothing Ohio State win just to make everybody feel better because this is gut, this is gut-wrenching. Woo. No, actually, we'll come back and do the national championship from 2002. Um, fascinating, Nathan. Again, I hope people are enjoying this, and I hope, again, don't just listen to us. Watch the game and then listen to us. So that's it. 1975 season ends with a loss 23-10 for Ohio State to UCLA in the 1976 Rose Bowl. Thanks for listening to Buckeye Retalkables. We'll be back Monday with another Market Down Monday and a lot of other good stuff coming your way this summer. Read Cleveland.com slash Buckeye Talk. Try the text at 614-350-3315. For Nathan Baird, I'm Doug Maurice, and that was Buckeye Talk. <laughs>